Welcome to the Sciences Po Energy podcast. This episode is designed for listeners who are relatively new to nuclear energy to introduce the history, technology and common problems associated with it and their solutions. We discuss with Dominique Grenech, one of the most important experts in nuclear energy in France and a holder of a PhD in nuclear physics on the thorium fuel cycle. We discuss what nuclear energy is, its history in France and the particular motivations for which the French government invested so much in nuclear from the 1970s. Following this, we look into the reasons behind the three nuclear disasters in history, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl and Fukushima, and what the nuclear industry has learned from these events in order to prevent further disasters. We also look into the treatment of nuclear waste, what it is and what the nuclear industry is doing in order to contain it, and where the nuclear industry is going in terms of technology, and who the leaders will be in the future. Some basic questions about your background. Who are you and what do you do? I am uh, Dominique Grenache. I am now retired, but I am still working as a consultant uh, uh, and international expert in nuclear energy. And in the course of my activity, I am teaching, in particular, in several universities, such as, of course, Sciences Po, where we are here today. I also write uh, technical documents in the frame of contracts with industry, but also articles. I published uh, a a very big book on the world history, uh, two years ago, on the world history uh, of uh, nuclear reactor. Okay, so let's talk a bit about France. In France, we have 75% of the energy generated from nuclear. What is the reason for this? Why is France so enthusiastic about nuclear energy? First, um, I must say that France has always been in the past uh, the most, one of the most advanced countries in the world uh, with regard to uh, nuclear science. Let me remind, uh, for example, that the radioactivity was di- discovered in France, here in Paris, by the way, by Henri Becquerel in 1896. Uh, let me remind also that the famous uh, Marie Curie uh, discovered the radium uh, here also in Paris uh, two years later, that is in 1998. Uh, just after the World War II, uh, France has committed in, uh, uh, to nuclear energy by creating the French Atomic Energy Commission. So a significant program was then carried out progressively on civil application on nuclear energy, and the first nuclear reactor started in December 1948, here in south of Paris, uh, 10 kilometers south of Paris, at the center Fontenay-Rose. Then in early 70s, construction program of uh, several large nuclear power plants was uh, decided, but uh, it must be important to say that this program was suddenly accelerated uh, after the oil crisis, in fact, because uh, as we may know in France, we have no natural resources, oil or gas or coal or something like this. So uh, this is the main reason why France uh, decided to launch a very big nuclear program. It was really a very big success since more than 50 nuclear power plants were built within 15 years. Uh, which constitute really a world record. So this is the basic uh, lines for the development of a big nuclear program in France. Sure. So in France, nuclear energy was part of a solution to ensure energy security in the country. 
NSE security uh, in the country is based uh, clearly on the fact that three quarters of electricity is supplied by nuclear energy. About, uh, let's say, roughly speaking, 10 or 15, 10 percent by hydraulic. This gives up uh, 90 percent of French electricity comes from local uh, supplies, I would say, and n- not from coal or from oil or from gas coming which which we must uh, buy abroad. So this is why we are very independent, as, at least for en- electricity uh, energy, and not for other sources of energy, of course. Sure. All right. So do you want to give us an idea, a very basic summary of what nuclear energy is? Uh, the basic principle is laid down on uh, what is called fission of an atomic nucleus, which is a kind of of explosion of this nucleus in two parts. And this is achieved by striking the atomic nucleus with a neutron, which is an elementary particle. And important is that fission releases new neutrons that can cause new fissions in other nucleus. And these new fissions will release uh, new neutrons in turn to be able to generate new fission and again and so on and so on. And this process is called a chain reaction. Uh, at the same time, fission releases, each fission releases a huge amount of energy which uh, generate heat. And uh, the heat can be recovered using what we call a coolant. Uh, which can then be used to produce steam, and this steam activates a steam turbine to produce electricity. So it is uh, as simple as, as this. Another uh, precision is it is important to note that the only natural element that can be easily used to provoke the fissions is uranium, and more precisely, only uh, one of its isotopes, which is uranium, two, three, five, uranium-235. Unfortunately, the proportion of uranium-235 in uranium is low, it's 0.7%. But this is why the uranium is a basic fuel for a nuclear reactor. If we're using uranium at a certain rate per year, how many years until we run out of uranium? Now, uh, to answer to your question about the abundance of resources, uh, let me say that uranium resources are rather well distributed worldwide, uh, which is uh, not the case of some other, other resources such as oil. Uh, they are located in region or country uh, which are stable, most of them, stable from a geopolitical standpoint. Another important point is that quantity required to uh, supply nuclear reactor are very small. Uh, to give you an idea, for example, in France, as we said, we have a lot of nuclear energy, only 8,000 tons of natural uranium are needed to supply all French nuclear reactors uh, for one year. So it's a very low amount uh, of uranium to ensure uh, the security of supply. Estimations today is about uh, 8 million tons of uh, uranium available as a resource. We are sure the, the uranium is there and we can recover it. This means that it is uranium needed to supply all nuclear reactors in the world during about one century or two centuries, but not more than, let's say, two centuries. Ultimately, isn't that long? I mean, of course, like with... Uh, Oil and any natural yeah. resource will discover yeah. much more of it, but yeah. 200 years. 
your question is quite uh, legitimate. But fortunately, we have, I would say, a joker, which are fast breeder reactor. And uh, actually, uh, this type of nuclear reactor is almost uh, a technological miracle uh, because they're all uh, extracting 100 times more energy from uranium than today's. Then this is, this is uh, the case today's in nuclear reactor, 100 more times. Uh, well, this is a miracle, but of course, it can be explained. In short, uh, this is because they can make fissions indirectly with the other isotope of uranium, which is unused today, and which is uranium-238, uh, which proportion in natural uranium in nine is 99.3%. Most of the natural uranium is uranium-238, which is not used today. Um, this is, in fact, uh, is not achieved directly by fissioning uranium-238, but through the fabrication in situ of an artificial atomic nucleus of uranium, um, with, which is called plutonium, and which, uh, with which we can make fission, as it is the case with uh, natural isotope uranium-235. We know that this type of reactor, in fact, is perfectly feasible. Uh, the more so that several power reactors of this type has been operating in the past, and uh, in my book, uh, I just count 14 reactor, fast breeder reactor has been built and operating in the past. Uh, today, uh, advanced versions on this reactor are under study in the world, and they will uh, be probably deployed at large scale in the future, uh, which will, uh, which will, from my point of view, uh, for sure, uh, which will make nuclear energy a very sustainable source of energy since with this fast breeder we are able to have nuclear energy for thousands of years, 10,000 or 20,000 of years. You change completely the scale of the problem. So when we talk about nuclear energy, people often uh, talk about the problems that are associated with nuclear energy. And these problems are really related to nuclear waste and nuclear accidents. So what um, is nuclear waste and to what extent is it actually a problem? Well, it is a problem, but it is more, and it is, from my point of view, it's more a social and public acceptance and even a political uh, issue than a technical problem. The, the technical problem is solved for nuclear waste. Provided that, of course, all radioactive waste, because nuclear waste, are managed very stringently under a close control of safety authority, this is the case today, at least in France and many other countries. Now, uh, let's come back to technical problem. Basically, there are two main classes of radioactive waste. The first class, uh, which is radioactive waste, uh, having a, rel sorry, a relatively short period of time, uh, let's say a few hundred years of lived, because they're half-life, we call half-life, uh, the maximum half-life for this uh, waste is 30 years. So after 300 years, there's, there are no more, or almost no more radioactive. The second category is a reverse. It, it contains a long, what we call long-lived waste, which will remain radioactive during thousands of years. Now, in terms of volume of mass, the first category 
uh, constitute, in fact, the overwhelming majority of radioactive waste. For example, in France, more, more than 95% of them are low-level waste or medium-level waste. 95% of them are in this category. But the radioactivity contained of this waste represent much less than 2%, 2% of the total radioactivity. Sure, and low-level waste is, is what? It's things like clothes, it's equipment. What exactly is low-level waste? Uh, Low-level waste are, yes, you're right. Uh, it's mainly, uh, for example, uh, gloves, plastic gloves from coming from manipulation of radioactive materials enter in this category, or decontamination of facilities, or packaging some, even, by the way, even waste coming from, uh, but it is not the waste directly from fission. So I come back to yeah, the yeah, second yeah. category of waste, and this is exactly uh, the opposite uh, for the second category of waste, uh, which are often called high-level waste or high-level high long-lived waste, uh, HLLW. Uh, their volume is very small, uh, less than 3%, for example, in France, but they contain also, uh, almost all radioactivity of uh, nuclear energy industry. Just to give you an idea, the mass of this high uh, HLLW, high-level long-lived waste, uh, before conditioning and before conditioning is less than 10 tons per year in France, 10 tons. But they are, once again, very radioactive, and mainly this is uh, the, the fission products coming from the fission products. How long exactly is long-lived? It is rather difficult to answer precisely to this question because radioactivity decreases with time. The question should be how long they could be dangerous. Let's say for the first category, once again, it's few hundred years, okay, 300, 400. So we can and place them, we can dispose them off on the surface and we just uh, make surveillance, monitoring them during 300 years. We can do that, no problem. But for high-level waste, when almost all radioactivity in high-level waste, uh, we must uh, dispose them underground in a deep geological disposal. So I know answer to a question, how long? They, I think a good comparison is what we call the radiotoxicity Radiotoxicity is, is expressed, well, whatever, in, in, in certain units, which is severed. How long the radiotoxicity is dangerous for human beings or, uh, and for human beings. So, a good uh, reference point is the radiotoxicity of natural uranium. Natural uranium is everywhere in the earth. You have uranium mines. So, I think it's a good reference point. So the question can be asked in the following terms. How long the, this radioactive waste, high-level radioactive, will be radiotoxic uh, below the, the radiotoxicity of natural uranium? Yeah. The answer is they are comparable to radiotoxicity of natural uranium after 10,000 years or 20,000 years. Okay, okay which but, is still yeah, quite sorry. a long time, of course. It's yes, still, it is a long, long time. time yeah, yeah I, I agree. So. It is because of that we cannot put them on the sur on a surface disposal uh, simply for ethic ethic reasons. We we don't want to give to our future generations such a burden. So this is why 
universally, I mean, all over the world, the only solution and responsible solution is to put these waste, which are once again dangerous for 10,000 years here, I would say, to put them in a deep geological repository. Not, of course, any sort of, uh, of, of, uh, of disposal in any media, but very precise media which are stable, which are here since many million years. In well, in conclusion, I, I would say that it is a very safe, very safe way to dispose of the, uh, the, uh, this high-level waste, once again, which will be noxious or uh, radiotoxic for 10,000 years or uh, 20,000 years or more. All right. Um, so let's talk about nuclear accidents. There have been three major nuclear accidents in history, first of which was in the 70s, I think in 1979, if correct me if I'm wrong, and the three-mile island accident. Then we had the Chernobyl disaster, which was in Ukraine, or at the time Soviet Union, which was about 10 years after, in the late 80s. Yeah. And then more recently, we had the Fukushima disaster <coughs> yes. in Japan. So... Le yeah, that's your, your question is, of course, uh, very legitimate once again. First, uh, so let me say just a few words about the, the three uh, largest accident, uh, nuclear reactor accident that you mentioned. Uh, the first one uh, was TMI th in, in USA, in Pennsylvania, TMI, Three Mile Islands. It happens in 1979. I remember quite well because I was not far from the reactor at that time. <laughs> So uh, its result, uh, this accident results, of course, in, I, I don't enter in details, but a sequence of error, including design defects and certain components, and uh, defects in control common system, but also human's error, a lot of things. Uh, the results is that the, the core, reactor core, partially melted and triggered the release of radioactive uh, product and also hydrogen. Yeah. Fortunately, very robust containment around the, the reactor prevented any release of radioactivity in the environment, though there was absolutely no release in the environment, and uh, the accident did not cause any casualty or injury. So I would say that it was a very good accident. This accident was extensively analyzed and we learned a lot. We implemented a lot of improvement in action, thanks, I would say, to this accident. But then, of course, uh, the Chernobyl accident wasn't quite as nice as the, yeah. uh, the Three Mile Island accident. Yes, you absolutely right. The case of Chernobyl is completely different. Uh, first, contrary to TMI, it was an absolute disaster for the environment and for the people. People were killed from this accident, and there was a very bad damage uh, in the area of Chernobyl and far from, even far from, from the, the Chernobyl reactor. Uh, so without going into detail, let me just underline a very important point here. The, this reactor was completely different type from PWR that we have in USA or in France or in many, many modern countries. And, and we knew that it was clearly an unsafe reactor. It wasn't safe by design. Furthermore, it was operated under the control of over relaxed and inefficient regulatory system that existed at that time. This system existed at that time in the former USSR. This is why Chernobyl, by the way, is called the paradox, but it's very clear, is it's called sometimes not a nuclear accident, but a Soviet accident because of the system. 
Uh, as for Fukushima accident, uh, uh, it appears now th there was mistakes made by Japanese to uh, regarding the examination of mag major external events uh, such la uh, like a tsunami, precisely. Yeah. There was clearly a total omission made by the operator and the safety authority because uh, because the reactor, which was uh, designed in the 60s, by the way, so a very long time ago, was uh, about at, at, at the end of its life. Uh, so, uh, such a, but such a gamble should not have been accepted. It should not have been accepted in France, for example, yeah, to, to say that the probability of such a big tsunami cannot happen in the next coming years. So th this accident, I mean, of course, we don't have tsunamis like that in France, but this kind of accident would not have happened in France. Well, tsunami not. That's clear. <laughs> the more so that many of the reactors are not are not along the sea, but yeah. along the rivers. So, but but we can imagine. We learn from from Fukushima as we learn from other. We, we didn't learn anything from Chernobyl except that if you are, uh, you know, in very bad condition, uh, safety condition. Okay, you, you, you <laughs> deal to the catastrophe. But from Fukushima, we learned in France and in Europe. All there was what we call post Fukushima measures for all nuclear reactors in Europe, in particular in France. One of them is, for example, we. A safety authority imposed to EDF, the owner of nuclear reactor in France, uh, to put an additional emergency diesel on all side, on all French side, able to to sustain any any external event, improbable or even we cannot imagine external event, but they are very you know resistance resistant to any flooding, to any any uh, seism, uh, big seism, and, and so on. EDF created what we call FARN, Force d'Action Rapide, Fast Action, I would say, team. They are able to, uh, to go to the site, whatever happened. If, if there is nobody, if there is no more body, if everything is destroyed around the reactor, they can, in 24 hours, go to the site and supply water and power in order to cool down the reactor. This is one of the post-Fukushima measures that we didn't have before. But they are also beginning to implement such a, such a team, uh, emergency teams, uh, in the United States, but for, in fact for another reasons. It's because of the 9-11 accident, a terrorist attack. So they have secret, so we don't know what they have, but we are sure they have. From my point of view, it is clear that the probability of large accident today in nuclear power reactor uh, with significant, which means significant release of radioactivity in the environment, has been considerably reduced uh, during the course of recent decades, uh, including after Fukushima. Well, this result of the outcome of multiple improvements uh, that I mentioned already on the facility uh, design stage operation and also measures to mitigate the consequences of severe accident. So in one world, the probability of a large accident is very, very low today. I don't say it's zero, yeah, but yeah. it's very, very low. So it's not then correct in your view to say that um, well, because we've had, let's say, three three nuclear accidents over 40 years, we're likely to have one. We expect an accident every 15 right. years or, or more now because we have more reactors. Right. Once again, I cannot uh, say better than that I said that we learned a lot from this accident and we took measure to improve and to really uh, deeply improve the, the overall safety of nuclear reactors. And once again, 
there's no today credible scenarios uh, to imagine uh, one thing, a very severe accident, or I mean a severe accident means a, a large amount of radioactivity outside the reactor. This is, yeah. this is a problem. So the probability, I don't say once again that it is zero. We cannot say this will never happen again, but the probability is really low. I want to talk a bit more about the environmental benefits of nuclear energy. As far as I can see, there are two main environmental benefits. The first of which is that there are very low life cycle carbon emissions. And the second of which is that there are very low, in fact, no uh, particulate pollution. So would you want to explain a bit more about that, um, what this really means for the nuclear industry? There, there has been in the past numerous study about the earth and air pollution of various ways of producing energy uh, and more generally uh, studies on both uh, their impact on environment and human health. Uh, I personally written uh, a chapter of a, a recent book published, rec- a book published uh, well two months ago, uh, entirely dedicated to this uh, very subject, which is environmental consequences of uh, energy sources. The worst source of energy is coal. Coal uh, supplies 40% of the world electricity, coal. Uh, but uh, coal is, uh, releases many harmful products in the atmosphere, such as aerosol, dust, carbon dioxide, of course, CO2, uh, which is a greenhouse uh, gas, uh, nitrous oxide, sulfur compounds, heavy metals, and even, <laughs> people don't know that, even some radioactive elements, because there are uranium and other products of uranium in, in the coal. They also generate huge amount of waste, which is simply billions of tons of ashes, which are, you know, disposed of on the surface. Nothing of the sort with nuclear energy. Are the levels of radioactivity around a nuclear power plant uh, higher than they would be normally? Once again, very, very good question, legitimate. The answer is no. Of course, there are measurements, a lot of measurements, and even controlled by anti-nuclear uh, association uh, measurements around nuclear power plants. Well, of course, it's detectable because radioactivity, the, <laughs> which is a problem, you can detect any background, what we call of radioactivity, because uh, it's easy to detect. So you can detect few amounts of radioactivity, but really 100 times or 1,000 times or even 10,000 times less than natural radioactivity. One other area where there's opposition to nuclear is in the economic. But there are some new innovations in nuclear power which might push costs lower. One particular innovation is a small modular reactor. Just wanted to have some comments from you about whether or not you think small modular reactors are the future of nuclear power and um, when we might see them existing in, uh, in Europe on a commercial scale. We are speaking today and since many years of this new type of reactor, uh, not new type, I will explain that, but uh, which are small modular reactors. What they are? They are just small. I mean, uh, typically less than 300 megawatts uh, power compared to 1,000 megawatts for reactor we have today, which uh, can be called big nuclear reactor or large nuclear reactor. So small modular reactor, the first characteristic is that they are small and the power is, uh, let's say, and there, there's a limit which is about 300 megawatts. What is the interest uh, today? First, I must underline this is not a radically different design concept. They are 
roughly speaking, of the same type, from technological point of view, uh, same type of existing large nuclear power plant we have today. The only expected progress, and it is an important, could be further improve the safety, overall safety, simply because of the small size. But the main incentive, to, so the main incentive today of SMR falls in terms of economy because of the series effect of many other effects that can improve the, um, the economic uh, business case, I would say, uh, of, the, of the SMRs, but also, and more than that, to expand and open up new markets for nuclear energy. I take an example. A small country cannot afford a big reactor and prefer to have a small one. In country like France, it's not necessary. Do you want to just briefly comment on where you think nuclear is going in terms of uh, countries, which countries are going to be leaders in nuclear, and um, technologies? Uh, of course, you may know the answer. China is investing a lot uh, on nuclear and on new nuclear uh, products, they, they are, you know, this is incredible. They are build, building new advanced reactor, new kinds of reactor, fast breeder reactor, for example, they are building high, what we call high temperature reactor. We, we worked a lot on this reactor in the past in France, but also in the US. Many other types of reactors. So they are clearly, in one word, a very impressive uh, nuclear program in China. Uh, they are building today, I think, about uh, 15 to 20 new reactors, and they have already uh, 40 or 50 reactors, so they will go uh, beyond France uh, in a few years. You know, They will have probably hundreds of reactors in, in, 20, in uh, 10 or 20 years. So, to answer precisely, China. But also, we have not to forget Russia, who has a very strong industry and who is this country selling uh, re selling uh, reactors in many countries today in Turkey in Vietnam even in uh, well in many other countries there is close cooperation um, between Russia and, and China by the way and they are they are most they are com very good competitors even for France and for many countries I think you will agree with that uh, generally that the world population will increase in, in the next decade. That's clear. It is also quite clear and more clear that world energy demand uh, will also increase, and probably even at a higher pace than the population itself. So in this perspective, and I come, okay, I come to nuclear, uh, in this perspective there will be definitively, we need all, all, energy sources. I said all energy sources, Within, without excluding any of them, uh, especially if it is for political reason or worse because of dogmatic position. You know what I mean. Uh, so most of the large industrial countries have, um, you understood, uh, have consequently developed a, a strategy aimed at a balance of the uh, energy sources. And there are today at least, uh, I would say, well, 10, sorry, 10 or 15 new uh, nuclear countries which have the firm intention to start a nuclear program. And there are very advanced projects in this area. Excellent. All right. Dominique, thank you very much for coming on the Salesforce yeah, Energy welcome. Podcast. Thank you very much for your question. Quite, quite good question. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Sciences Po Energy Podcast. Recorded and produced in Paris by Paul David Evans with help from Sirvash Barhoda. 
If you like the podcast, then feel free to leave a rating on iTunes or wherever you are listening. And if you're an undergraduate student and you're interested in energy, then have a look at the programme offered by Sciences Po.